0: Welcome everyone to Bitcoin Optech Newsletter number 285, recap on Twitter Spaces. Today we're going to be talking about a vulnerability in Core Lightning, the L-Enhanced Soft Fork Proposal, the 64-bit Arithmetic Soft Fork Proposal, Cluster Mempool, and the CPFP carve-out policy, updates to Bitcoin transaction compression specification we covered previously, minor extractable value and ephemeral anchors, and a collection of notable code changes. I'm Mike Schmidt. I'm a contributor at Optic and executive director at Brink funding open source Bitcoin developers.
1: Merch? Hi, I'm Merch. I work at Chaincode Labs to improve Bitcoin.
0: Brandon?
2: Hi, I'm Brendan Black, or Reardon. Uh, I recently joined Swan, and in my free time, I work on Bitcoin stuff to make more, to get more people on Bitcoin.
0: What are you doing at Swan?
2: I'm helping with their self-custody offering.
0: Cool. You have experience in such things.
3: It's true, I have like a trend going on. Chris? Uh, yeah, I'm Chris Stewart, I'm an independent Bitcoin developer.
0: Oliver?
4: I'm Oli. I work at Lightning Labs, uh, mostly on L&D and Asset stuff.
0: And Greg hasn't yet attained speaker privileges, but we all know Greg, right? He's a, he's a stalwart attendee. Well, we're going to jump into the newsletter. I've shared some tweets in the space that covers what we covered this week in the newsletter, 285. We'll go through sequentially, and Greg will introduce himself. Hi, Greg. Bye, Bye, Greg. Greg, who are you? Getting the silent treatment.
1: So, um, Greg is a wizard at Spiral, and he works on Ellen symmetry and especially We Three transactions and uh, some parts of cluster mempool and package relay right now. And that's totally butchering it, but roughly yeah. covering it too. That's his actual title: Bitcoin wizard. I think so.
0: First news item this week is Disclosure of Past Vulnerability in Core Lightning. So in... Hi, Greg. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, great. So Core Lightning Vulnerability. In Newsletter 266, we covered the fake funding vulnerability, which was disclosed, which involves a scenario where a malicious actor can start the channel opening process with a victim's lightning node but never actually complete the the channel open process. Essentially, they don't broadcast the channel open transaction, which is okay if it's done one time, but if the attacker repeats this process thousands or millions of times, it could cause issues due to the resources of the victim's node being wasted on these fake funding requests and not being available for other lightning node operations. In our podcast on 266, discussing that issue, we had Matt Corallo on to talk about that vulnerability, if you're curious of the details of that particular fake funding vulnerability. Lightning implementations had mitigated that vulnerability by the time we discussed that disclosure and all was good. However, in um, subsequent retesting, of fixes to the fake funding, Matt Morehouse, who discovered the original vulnerability, also noticed that for Core Lightning specifically, he was able to trigger a race condition in Core Lightning implementation. And the race condition occurred with the interplay of the channel open process and the Chan backup plugin. Essentially the vulnerability had laid in wait for a while because no one was actually using that chan backup feature until the peer storage backup feature made use of that channel backup um, in in the plugin that actually used that channel backup hook. So at the time that the peer storage backup feature was released that vulnerability was essentially uh, unleashed and Matt Morehouse was the one who caught that particular race condition and reported it to the Core Lightning team responsibly and a fix was made. There's also a great write-up that Matt Morehouse did disclosing, uh, getting into the disclosure in detail on his blog, which we link to in the newsletter as well. Merch or special guests, does anybody have any thoughts on that vulnerability? Merch gives me the thumbs up. Great. Next item from the newsletter is titled New L. Enhance. Combination soft fork proposed. We have the author of this proposal here, Brandon Black. And he posted this to the Delving Bitcoin. Some details about the soft fork. I'll let him explain it himself.
2: Hi there. Thanks for having me up, and, and yeah, as just to introduce this a little bit as, as many folks know I've been kind of learning in public and going down this rabbit hole of covenants and and soft forks and any quiv out and check template verify and everything for close to a year now I think it'll be a year next month that I've been really on this rabbit hole um, and so after all of that and and spending time talking to all the the authors of various proposals and and whatnot um, and seeing seeing what exactly we can actually do in practice with with these covenant proposals um, this L enhanced combination seems to be the, the cleanest way to get pretty much everything that we that we want to be possible on Bitcoin. While there may be better ways to do certain things, um, this was the clean way to get the thing. So now what is it exactly? This combines check template verify, which is the proposal BIP119 from Jeremy Rubin. Um, and the way to think of check template verify briefly is that it restricts the next outputs that some Bitcoin can be spent to. Um, and, and specifically, Check Template Verify restricts all of those outputs. You can't restrict just one or just a couple. It's all of them. Um, but it can be much like in any prevout signature can be rebound to different inputs. The Check Template Verify Covenant can be rebound to different inputs as well. So there's a lot of overlap in the things you can do with any prevout and that you can do with Check Template Verify. Um, to be very specific again, check template verify covenants are very similar to any prev out, any script, all signatures. So That's one part, check template verify. Um, the downside potentially to check template verify is that you can't use it easily with signatures unless you also have something like check sig from stack. And so in L enhance, we add check sig from stack, which lets us check a signature against that template hash which then gets us pretty much the full functionality of any any script, all signatures, with check template verify and check sig from stack. There's one more thing that's kind of a a difficulty that's been shown in using Taproot, and it's been talked about for a while, but recently actually Rusty posted about it. And that is that the control block uses a significant number of witness bytes. And 32 of those bytes are representing the internal key of your taproot output. There are cases, quite a few of them it turns out, where you're not using that internal key directly to sign key path spends. So both the out proposal, which uses the magic byte 1 to copy that key and use it in, in checking a signature directly, and my Ellen enhanced proposal here, which has a separate opcode for pulling that internal key and putting it on the stack are trying to find ways to make use of those bytes so that in the cases where they're not specifically needed for a key spend, they can be used for something else useful. Uh, and so that's that's what internal key allows us to do. Um, because that internal key, if you're not going to use it as a key spend, should be a nums point. And one of the ways to create a nums point is to hash some known data and treat it as a public key. We can use a hash that might be a check template verify hash, for example, as that nums point and, and be able to make a, a check template verify that's almost as efficient as a bare check template verify using TapScript in this way. And get then kind of the, the anonymity set growth of, of being in the tap root key pool until it's spent that way. So those are the three parts of L enhance. And I call it L enhance because it. Really does enhance lightning. Um, you know, it enables arc in the original way that Barack envisioned it. Although he's now moving on to some other fancier ways of doing arc, but it enables arc in the original way he posed it. And arc was originally envisioned as a lightning wallet. It enables John Law's timeout trees. Um, it enables lightning symmetry with the combination of these opcodes. Um, it also enables the simplified PTLCs that uh, Greg can potentially tell us more about. You know, you can do PTLCs with existing scripts, but they're pretty hard to deal with. And with these opcodes, you can make pretty PTLCs. Um, and yeah, that's why I called it that.
0: Yeah, that was gonna be one of my clarification points was that it, it, the, the name makes it sound Lightning specific, but there's also all these other protocols that could benefit from this. Um, yep, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I think it, it, it's, is it Lightning specific? No. But most of the things that we really, really want and that this enables are kind of around lightning. You know, it's like at the edges of lightning, how do we onboard people better? And Ellen enhanced really helps with that. Um, another example that I forgot to mention just now is non-interactive channels. Once you have these signed covenants, um, it becomes possible to build. The details aren't as worked out quite as I would like yet, but it's looking very likely that you can get um, either a fully non-interactive one-way channel using these, or a non-interactive channel open for a two-way channel using these opcodes. Details still to be worked out on that, but it's looking very likely we can get those to work.
0: Gibbs, I saw that you commented on the original delving post, and you're also driving a lot of the LN symmetry work. Do you have particular thoughts on the proposal so far?
5: uh not much uh just the one caveat that we're talking about yeah application things we want to do with covenants the one thing it probably the one use case which is still you know under development that probably doesn't do is something like vaults practical vaults at least right but other than that sounds sounds about right
0: james i see you're in here if you want to participate and comment on vaults or anything else related to the software proposal you can request speaker access Brandon, what's the feedback on the proposal been so far, both on on Delving or uh, Twitter or elsewhere that you've had in some of these conversations?
2: You know, frankly, I've been blown away by the overall positivity around it. Um, people seem pretty excited about this combination, um, where we're kind of, I've been trying for a year, basically, to, to resolve the, the fight over APO versus CTV. Um, and finally, I think I found something that that brings us the a good combination of those features. Um, so really extremely positive. Um, I've been working with AJ on getting the bips into his new uh, Binana repository so that he can potentially add the check from stack and internal key to Inquisition. Um, he had some great feedback over there. Yeah, over, overwhelmingly positive feedback so far.
0: Hey James, did you have any comments or questions? Um, yeah. I.
6: Uh, sorry, I'm at a coffee shop. So sound might not be great, but um, yeah, I think it's really interesting work. Um, I would say I'm still a little bit confused about how op internal key fits in um, and what, what motivated that. Um, is, is the purpose sort of to combine that with check sig from stack uh, to somehow emulate APO or or is there some other way that it, that it fits in? I mean, I think the nice thing about it is it's a very simple primitive, um, this sort of common sense to have available. Um, and then the only other thing that, that was on my mind was just echoing, um, what Greg said about vaults. I think for me, that's, that's still alongside lightning far and away, the most compelling use face, use case for covenants. Um, I think it's just really widely applicable. Um, either this proposal doesn't, uh, sort of address that, but, um, it's, uh, it's interesting work nonetheless.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll clarify a little bit on internal key. Um, internal key doesn't enable anything that would not otherwise be possible. It's a way to do certain things with fewer bytes. And that's the same reason that the Any out proposal includes that magic single byte key of the one key, uh, is just to, to be able to reuse the internal key uh, inside a script when you otherwise would just be wasting those 32 bytes in the control block because there wasn't another reason to have a separate internal key there. Um, so it doesn't enable anything fundamentally, but it does reduce the number of bytes needed for doing LN symmetry or for doing uh, a check up of verify where you have no key spend available.
6: Cool, thanks.
2: Oh, and then on Vault, as, as you know, because I've, I've talked to you on, on DMs a little bit, um, I'm very open to saying that, that we should take L enhance and do L enhance plus Vault. Um as, as Luke likes to point out, you know, you can have multiple activations in progress at the same time. So I'm also open to having uh, them going together because as you also point out, Vault isn't dependent on C T V, although it works very well with CTV. Uh so I I'm a big fan of your work on Vault, as I think you know, so would love to do some some combination of those things as we move forward with thinking about what's next for Bitcoin.
0: Brandon, where is the idea at in terms of something from a write-up to working code? Can you maybe explain the progress that you've made? Yeah, so I
2: have pull requests out against the world, basically, with working code. Um, They're not all in an absolutely consistent state right now. But Inquisition, MutinyNet, and Core, uh, some are in draft state right now as I work through some of AJ's feedback, and I'm working on getting that all updated. So yeah, working code out there. It has, uh, I would say, reasonable test coverage in, in terms of using the, um, the Bitcoin Core transaction test framework to test end-to-end transactions, but not end-to-end through the RPCs. I don't have um, RPC-level tra- testing of it in place at this time. Uh, but there's working code. Um, Chris Grida is working on updating Greg's APO branch to the current Core Lightning so that we can then work on porting APO to use L-Enhanced just to verify that everything does indeed work that way. And I think that'll be a big step towards, towards readiness. Um, yeah, so the code is out there, but we have some work to do on prototypes.
0: Is there a particular call to action for the audience, depending on their varying level of technical capabilities? Obviously, some of the wizards, you want to take take a look at some of this, but maybe there's some prototyping that people can do or, or building on top of some of, of what you've done?
2: Yeah, a couple of things would be amazing. Um, one is uh, I, I would love to see some other ideas for different kinds of vault-like things you can do with CTV or with CTV and CheckStick from Stack. We've been banding about some ideas for that, and they're never gonna be as good as op vault. but I'm curious what else is possible there. Uh, and you could base that work on, on James's simple CTV vault, which does the very simplest CTV vault, but maybe there are some cooler vaults we could do. And the other thing is review the BIPs. There's obviously, as we, we said, op, op internal key is a very simple concept. That BIP needs some textual improvements probably, I'd love a review on that. And then Checksig from Stack. There's a couple of design things around Checksig from Stack that are worth considering. Most particularly, AJ gave me some feedback yesterday as to whether Checksig from Stack should bother supporting ECDSA at all. And I would love people's thoughts on that specific question on the BIP uh, pull request.
1: Merch thumbs down. Um, yeah, I I think that in a Schnorr signature world, there's so many things that are easier and better. Uh, I don't think that we want to build out support for old things and I don't really see the point. I think we're going to move forward more towards a pay to tap route uh, as the standard type world. So, I don't know if it would be worth, or I, maybe I just don't see an obvious reason why it would be worth even supporting ECGSA.
2: I've been coming around to that direction. What, what happened, of, just to give hist- history, it's kind of an interesting tidbit. I originally wrote it, the CSFS BIP, with like the simplest possible concept. Make a new SIG-OP in all of the different script types that behaves exactly like the other SIG-OPs using only their kind of already known signature checking methods and semantics. But of course, the the old check-sig semantics on legacy scripts are kind of a mess. So then I realized it's better to bring the TAP script semantics to the, the new SIG-OP in, in check-sig from, check sig from stack verify. And at that point, might as well do snore, but I left ECDSA CDSA support as well, and I'm thinking it should be dropped.
6: Brandon, one of the things that I'm curious about um, as to whether you have any opinions on after your investigations uh, are something like TX TXHash. Uh, there was a lot of talk about that. Um, and, and for those who don't remember, TX TXHash, um, as proposed by Stephen Roos, is... Uh, sort of like a, a more flexible version of, or more parameterizable version of, of uh, CTV. Um, have you uncovered any uses that are uniquely served by something like that? Um, or you know, do you think that the combination of, of CTV and check safe from stack are, are pretty sufficient?
2: It's a little hard to, to know. There are definitely things that are easier with TxHash. Um, they tend to be around fee management in these in these um, output tree proposals, like template or uh, timeout trees or arc. These have these trees of CTVs or TxHash restricted outputs. And the fee management in those can be quite a challenge. So that's where I think that the TX Hash work really kicked off was them looking to resolve some of those in the in the ARC design. So I don't so far see things that are that are only possible that we have concrete designs for with TX Hash, but I see things where the theme management might be easier with TX Hash. That said, yes. um, TX Hash is a strict upgrade and a clean upgrade to CTV hash itself, TxHash Verify, I should say, includes a default mode, which is nearly identical to CTV's hashing mode. And I, I don't think we should we should kind of tie these things together in this way of, oh, should I do TxHash or CTV? I think we should do CTV and continue developing TxHash as an upgrade to CTV. And I don't think there's any reason to delay CTV or to – I don't even want to say delay. There's no reason to relate them in that way. If we do CTV first, great. If we do TX Hash because we get it all worked out first,
6: that's also fine. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Um, and I think the it's worth pointing out probably the main risk. You know, someone might ask, well, if TX Hash encompasses CTV and it's more flexible, why wouldn't we do that? Um, and I think the answer for me there is that there are uh, a lot of caching considerations that come up. Um, to avoid things like you know, the quadratic SIG hash attack when you introduce a bunch of parameters um, uh, for what can go into the SIG hash. And if you even just look at the code that Steven Roos produced, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a bit more complicated than, than something like CTV is. So I think you have a good way of looking at it. I agree with that.
0: Brandon, thank you for joining us. We have some other interesting news items that you may wanna stick around for, but if you need to drop, we understand. We have a proposal for 64 bit arithmetic, and we have the proposal author here, Chris Stewart. Chris, you posted a draft BIP to the Delving Bitcoin forum for enabling 64 bit arithmetic operations on a future soft fork. Maybe to start with, what sort of arithmetic operations are currently possible with Bitcoin Script, and what are the limitations with that currently?
3: Yeah, so. We have some arithmetic operations in Bitcoin script uh, currently, uh, like an op-add opcode, op-sub-opcodes. They all interface with this uh, internal class called cScriptNum, which has some pretty uh, hard-to-reason about uh, semantics uh, associated with it. It's a 32-bit signed integer representation of numbers. Uh, Interestingly enough, we can actually extend that to five byte number representations on the stack but cannot actually do anything with five byte numbers on the stack when uh, aka consuming them with a subsequent op ad or op sub op code um all this is just to kind of uh drive home to the point that there's like extremely hard to reason about semantics about the current uh, arithmetic operations in bitcoin if anyone doesn't believe me uh go try and Implement an interpreter uh, that's consistent with uh, these rules. There's a wonderful file in the Bitcoin core repo called script uh, underscore valid.json, and maybe there's a script underscore invalid.json as well that uh, details in length uh, how the consensus rules around these opcodes currently work. Um, I, I guess I want to give a little background on like how I got motivated to do this because I think. Um, uh, this is a vision that I, I would like to see Bitcoin to go. Uh, I was preparing for Chicago BitDevs in the fall of this year. Um, I think uh, I had finally got around to reading AJ Towns' proposal called Op Tap Leaf Update Verify. I call it OptiLove for short. Um, I thought this was an extremely compelling proposal that I hadn't really seen come out of the Bitcoin ecosystem in quite some time. Uh, however, this. This proposal allows you to kind of like non interactively join outputs and leave outputs. Uh, The key thing here is non interactively doing this. Um, What I learned in DLC world like interactivity is just a a killer and you know we're learning that lesson over and over again with various uh, Bitcoin protocols. So whenever we can move to non interactivity, I think we should. Um, However, this TLOP proposal is an absolute elephant of a proposal. Um, There's a lot in there. There's a lot of uh, reasoning that needs to be done. And I was like, okay, how do we decompose this problem? Like, what what do we need to actually get there in, you know, 10 or 20 years, which is kind of the rate it seems that it takes for Bitcoin to change things. Um, So if we decompose this thing, there was this cool op code in there called op-in-out amount. So that could, like, push the input amounts and output amounts onto the stack, and you could do um, script operations based on how much money is leaving the smart contract or joining the smart contract. So like, I'm like, okay, that's really cool. That makes sense. We've decomposed one layer here. And then I start reading about in out amount and AJ writes that, well, this actually isn't even possible today because we can't even support 64 bit arithmetic operations in Bitcoin. So I'm like, oh, wow. So that seems like a nice small piece that I can carve off here. Like we can hopefully not have too much contention around 64 bit operations. And let's get this, you know, let's get the ball rolling here. So I also went and saw like this actually has been implemented before in uh, Bitcoin derivative blockchain, um, the elements project. So it was really heartbreaking for me to see that this is like work that's uh, kind of been done already. I think everybody agrees that it's valuable. But the political angle of like actually getting things activated on Bitcoin is just, you know, it's not a fun process and it's not very rewarding either. So like what I'm doing with this uh, proposal is just literally taking work from the elements project, uh, bringing it over to Bitcoin and becoming the standard bearer and dealing with the politics to uh, get this stuff activated. My goal is to get this really, you know, merged into Bitcoin Core this year um, according to Fanquake, we've got a 27.0 release in March, and then I think a 28 release in October. And My goal is to have this in the 28 release. So now, a little bit about how the 64-bit um, opcodes actually work. Uh, one other problem with the existing uh, opcodes, like op add, op sub, in uh, the interpreter currently, is it doesn't give you a great way to like handle like overflow scenarios. So One thing that's introduced with this 64-bit opcode here is it gives you the ability to check for overflows on a multiplication operation, for instance, or say if uh, someone's trying to divide by zero in the uh, uh, op-div 64 opcode, we would now push false onto the stack and check these things in advance so then when you're writing your script, you can properly handle scenarios like this where you receive bad inputs and build an op-if, op-else-if uh, conditional logic based on, uh, you know, whatever you want to do in your failure scenario where your inputs, uh, you know, would, would result in overflow ops. Uh, there's also an op uh, neg 64, so negate your 64-bit um, uh, stack top. There's op greater than, less than 64, a bunch of comparison op codes. Um, I think, you know, this is also has, a, has the ability to clean up a lot of uh, complexity in the sense of number encodings in the Bitcoin um, protocol. I've got feedback on this proposal and uh, from people in this call, and I'm still working on giving a an in-depth answer. So I'm shooting at the hip here a little bit, but I do believe this is to be true. Uh, you know, there's the classic uh, thing in computer science where it's like, oh, uh, we have a protocol. It doesn't fix what problem we have. So let's make a new protocol. And then uh, at the end of the day, you know, you have two different protocols that, you know, no one coalesces around. And uh, that's kind of the case with numbering in the Bitcoin protocol. We have uh, output values, which are in 64s. Those are like the Satoshis that you see in the protocol. And inside of Bitcoin script itself, we have another uh, number encoding. That's a minimal uh, length number encoding. This The minimal thing is a key consideration here for malleability purposes. Um, if you want to read more about that, check out BIP62. Um, but we do have two different numbering protocols in Bitcoin. And uh, my my 64-bit arithmetic protocol suggests moving back to just little Indian 60, 64-bit numbers and getting rid of the uh, minimal encoding. Um, the reason why I think this is the way we should be going is because Uh, Well, again, we're going to have two numbering systems in Bitcoin no matter what. People want to do math on Satoshi values. Um, Hopefully in the future that's not uh, part of this specific proposal, but we sure as heck aren't changing the uh, number uh, representation of Satoshi values. So maybe we should consider changing the interpretation logic. And uh, I believe we can do that in a safe way that doesn't uh, change malleability. It will increase witness sizes a little bit. I still need to do the analysis on how much we're talking here, like we're talking hundreds of megabytes, gigabytes over the history of the blockchain. I haven't done that, but uh, um, anyway, so this is uh, kind of uh, where I'm at with the 64-bit proposal. I, again, would like to get this done this year. I think it can be relatively uncontroversial, um, but I'm open to questions. Sorry, I, I, I ranted a lot there.
0: Chris, you got into this a bit, but maybe just to be explicit for listeners, you're you're not proposing to change the existing arithmetic opcodes, but instead yes. adding new opcodes that can handle 64-bit integers in specific ways.
3: That is that's exactly right. Um, I you know would like to see the old opcodes disabled in new witness versions, um, or maybe even tap uh, leaf versions. I'm still trying to understand the. Uh, what's po- uh, possible with the new leaf versions that uh, we have in the Bitcoin protocol, but uh, I, I, di- I, I think we should just get rid of the old uh, uh, numeric operations in a, in a, in a future uh, release.
0: You answered one of my questions, I think, which was, hey, I know you worked at work at SherdBits, and you guys are working on DLCs, and you sort of connected the dots here from DLCs, non-interactivity, T-Love, 64-bit, arithmetic is is that sort of the the rabbit hole you went down
3: unfortunately with shirt bits you know one of the biggest uh problems we ran into is uh just interactivity of setting up dlcs um it it is just a killer uh any sort of interactive protocol you know requires a ton of overhead out of out of band and uh especially when you start introducing like multi-party protocols so like say if you wanted 100 people on a dlc instead of just two people, um, you know, that uh, communication complexity scales pretty horribly. So um, that's why I had interest in T-Love, because I think it allows us to start doing things like we see on other blockchains, uh, such as Ethereum with the smart, you know, basically uh, censorship resistant financial markets deployed to Ethereum. But again, like that's the elephant that I'd like to get to someday. I'm taking a bite out of this elephant by trying to just get a very small proposal activated not even uh, allowing access to satoshi values in the script interpreter yet I'm just trying to do 64 bit arithmetic and then we'll take another bite out of the elephant uh, if this goes well and if this takes 5 years to activate I you know <laughs> I probably won't be around for that because that's just uh, you know
0: demoralizing There was one part of the bip that maybe you could help elaborate a bit on and you may have touched on this but maybe we can elaborate a bit further the bip also describes this set of conversion opcodes to convert existing bitcoin protocol numbers into you mentioned these four and seven byte little indian representations can can you talk a little bit more about about that
3: yeah so this is something that's been requested from other Bitcoin developers that are interested in this 64-bit proposal. I didn't originally have them in, and uh, I'm really trying to avoid scope creep here because as your features grow linearly, your bike shedding uh, possibilities and concern trolling grow exponentially. Um, so I am really pushing back against introducing things like say a left shift operator or a right shift operator or you know, other like sane things that could be included in this per- uh, proposal but i want to keep this to be a slim fat soft fork rather than a fat one again um concern trolling and uh bike shedding grows exponentially as your features grow linearly however um this is something that people said like is valuable and they would find valuable for their uh work um it does allow you to convert from say little endian 32-bit numbers to little endian 64-bit numbers from the script num script nums that are currently used in Bitcoin to 64-bit um, little endy and signed integers. Uh, so those are included in there. I, you know, if people think that this is unnecessary and, again, is introducing more features at the cost of uh, our exponentially growing bike shedding and, uh, uh, you know, I guess bike shedding possibilities, I, I think I could cut those out, too, and just literally go with the four, um, you know, strictly arithmetic op, op codes mul, op opad and sub.
0: Merch, James, or Greg do you guys have any questions about what Chris has been talking about?
6: Yeah, I'm kind of mystified by T-Love to be honest because to my knowledge it was never fully specified. Um, to recap for people uh, T-Love was kind of a conceptual idea that AJ Towns came up with and correct me if I'm wrong on anything here Chris but it's basically just saying, hey, what if you could articulate some allowable transformation that the, the tap tree could go through, you know, on its way to being spent. Um, but like that method of articulating the allowable transformation, I, I don't think ever actually came to be. So, so t to me was kind of um, unspecified. Is, uh, is that not the case for you,
3: Chris? That that is exactly the case for me because James, frankly, why would you work on something like that when it's extremely complex and we can't activate simple things like sixty-four bit arithmetic on Bitcoin? <laughs> so um, I have a lot of interest in that. You'll probably see more of me uh, writing about T Love in the you know coming months. Although being realistic about where the Bitcoin political process is at, uh, you know, I wouldn't expect to see that anytime soon. Uh, however, I think the vision is absolutely wonderful, and that's something that I want to work towards. And again, like looking at T-Love as the ele- elephant, like this is the smallest piece of the elephant that I could take and uh, think that's possible to get activated in you know, a, a reasonably short time frame. A, you know, I guess I shouldn't say activated, merged into Bitcoin Core and deployed in, uh, in nine months, but uh, you know, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm being a little overly optimistic here.
0: I see there's a bunch of discussion on delving in response to your post. How would you summarize the feedback there and, and elsewhere so far?
3: I mean, I think it's like relatively positive. Um, there's, you know, concerns like the, the number encoding is the number one thing that I've got pushed back on. Um, you know, with the joke about, uh, you know, why would we have two encodings? We already got one. And, you know, then a third person's going to come along and create their own encoding. Um, my pushback on that is just like, yeah, we've got two encodings. That is the world that we live in with the Bitcoin protocol right now. Satoshi values are just different than, you know, what the script numbers that are used. I think the script numbers are pretty bad. I think they should go away. Um, obviously not in a hard fork way, but we should soft fork them out slowly over as time goes on. That also allows us to reduce complexity in the interpreter. So like right now we got to, we have these things called F require minimal flags which says like, hey, we need to require the minimal encoding of a number in the script interpreter. Well, that makes sense. And that is an acute problem that we had in the history of Bitcoin, you know, in that um, let's call it 2010 to 2017 era, where we had a lot of malleability of scripts, uh, specifically tinkering with uh, um, script numbers to be, uh, you know, adjust the TX ID by just encoding them slightly differently. However, my pushback on this would be, well, let's just require all numbers to be eight bytes. There's no malleability. It's compatible with other number representations in the Bitcoin protocol like Satoshi values. And uh, I mean, I think that just reduces overall complexity for new people being onboarded into the project too, because they can just now use the little endian number representations that they've learned you know, in their computer science career, software development careers along the way. Rather than having to, you know, learn our esoteric uh, number encoding um, that currently exists, you know, it is a fair criticism that this will increase witness sizes, you know, slightly. I still need to run the numbers over the historical blockchain to figure out how much, um, but I don't think it's a needle mover personally. But we'll see what the numbers say.
6: Well, it's not even just about historical numbers. I mean, a lot of the prospective soft forks include, you know. Um, specifying uh, TX out position parameters and, you know, a lot of small numbers. So if you're fixing eight bytes for every single number, I mean, that just strikes me as a potentially terrific waste of space.
3: Well, and I guess that's really the question is, like, how much do we uh, care about blockchain disk space? And especially specifically in the witness um, versus, uh, I don't know, comprehendability, readability, understandability of the protocol um, and I guess that's a choice that you know we as Bitcoin developers need to make.
0: Chris, thanks for coming on. Thanks for explaining the proposal. and you're welcome to stay on as we go through the newsletter. Or are you free to drop if you have other things to do? Thanks, Chris. Thanks guys. Next item from the newsletter is titled "Overview of Cluster Mempool Proposal." So back in Newsletter 280, we covered Cluster Mempool discussion, and we also provided an overview of Cluster Mempool. We also have a Cluster Mempool topic now on the Optech website. And also in Podcast 280, covering Newsletter 280, we discussed Cluster Mempool with Peter Wulla, who is working on it. So for some background, check out that great discussion with him. And on top of our write-up and chat with Peter and two. 280, Suhas has now posted a proposal overview to the Delving Bitcoin forum that we linked to in this newsletter. While we encourage listeners to read that post and get further explanations around Cluster Mempool, this week we specifically noted a detail about the write-up from Suhas involving CPFP carve-out policy and its relation to Cluster mempool. Merch, I know you're somewhat involved with the cluster mempool effort and team. Maybe to start, can we give a quick summary of carve-out first and then maybe comment on the relation to cluster mempool here?
1: Sure. So uh, the CPFP carve-out is a strategy to prevent pinning, and the idea is if you have for example a transaction that is owned sorry a transaction output that is owned by two parties in some fashion and they um like one or yeah there's a transaction with two outputs and one person adds a bunch of descending transactions to it that either uh, hit the descendant size limit or the descendant count limit it would be prevented that another person adds another descendant of the same transaction uh, because the limit is already exceeded. So the limit is currently 25 uh, descendants. And I believe that a chain of descendants is not permitted to have more than 101 kilo v bytes. So um, this w- would be a strategy for someone that is trying to prevent a transaction from confirming to prevent you from adding your own CPFP to bump it uh, to get a quick confirmation. The CPFP carve-out now permits that a single time someone is allowed to add a another transaction to the first um, like as a child, to the first transaction in such a chain. So uh, it only can have a single ancestor, I think, and is limited in size. And um, yeah, so this basically permits um, the counterparty to uh, bypass this limit a single time to be able to bump their transaction in a two-party protocol. The problem now how that um, interferes with cluster mempool is in cluster mempool, we would be aiming to drop the descendant limit altogether, and also the ancestry limit, because we now think of transactions rather in the context of all the connected transactions, uh, transitively across child and parent relationships, and therefore we and um, if we had sort of this kind of carve, carve out, um, this might appear at various different points in the cluster. So you would be able to add multiple transactions to a cluster. And then, of course, the cluster size limit, uh, the count of transactions that a cluster can have, and and the weight limit a cluster may have would be exceeded at multiple points. And then, really, the limit on the cluster wouldn't be effective. And we'd have to engineer instead with, with the expected overall size with all the potential uh, carve-out transactions.
0: So in this case, what what is the proposed solution to that incompatibility between carve-out and cluster mempool? Um,
1: my understanding is that, The idea is to move uh, two-party protocols like Lightning channels to a new transaction version, namely v3 transactions. And v3 transactions would opt into a topology restriction by themselves, which would prevent the sort of pinning that we currently are bypassing with the CPFP carve out. So by opting into v3 transactions, The CPFP carve-out would be unnecessary because it doesn't, like, the the problem that it remedies can no longer occur with V3 transactions.
0: You've mentioned two-party protocols, and I think CPFP carve-out was largely a lightning-driven policy. Um, But we also note in the newsletter on this topic that as discussion has progressed around cluster mempool and mempool management in general, folks who are developing software related to mining wallets or other contract protocols should take a look at what Suhas wrote up and and engage with some of this discussion to, to make sure that, I guess, all the bases are covered. So if you're a developer in one of those fields, obviously take a look at what Suhas wrote up and, and engage. Merch? What else is there to talk about about cluster mempool
1: and carve-out? Well, uh, there's a whole series of really interesting posts on Delving Bitcoin. The overview is a great point to start, but if you're more interested in how it all works, there's a bunch of related write-ups of the details of how clusters are linearized, how um, it all could work together. There is also a draft branch that Sue has mostly has been working on. I, I also know that um, uh, this, um the comparison mechanism that we came up with uh, with the uh, how we think about two different variants of the same cluster is now a topic for um package relay and v3 transactions. So Instagibs has been looking at it. There's been a bunch of interest from other developers. So um, this is this is pretty exciting, moving quickly. If there's if that sort of tickles your interest, I think it's a good time to to get a look at it.
0: Next item from the newsletter is titled Updated Specification and Implementation of Bitcoin Transaction Compression. So back in Newsletter 267, we described the initial proposal by Tom Breyer for Bitcoin transaction compression. This update this week is an update to that specification. The proposal is a spec to represent Bitcoin transactions in a smaller number of bytes by applying various techniques to save bytes on transaction representation. Check out Podcast 267 where we actually had Tom Breyer on, the author of the proposal, and we got into a lot of those techniques in that discussion. The use case for such a thing would be able to be able to represent a Bitcoin transaction in bandwidth constrained mediums. We note satellite transmission and Tom talked about steganography as well. The post from Tom that we covered this week updates that original spec with some additional optimizations, and to quote the newsletter that quotes Tom, quote, removing the grinding of nLock time in favor of a relative block height, which all of the compressed inputs use, and the use of a second kind of variable integer. So if you're curious about the details, check out News 267 and Tom's updated post that we covered this week. Next item from the newsletter is discussion of minor extractable value in non-zero ephemeral anchors. We have Greg on this week to talk about this topic, and he was the one who posted to Delving Bitcoin to discuss these concerns. Greg, maybe to start, what is MeV?
5: So sorry, I might cough through this discussion, but MEV, well, there's a few definitions. We're gonna talk about the ones I think Bitcoiners normally are talking about. So MEV stands for minor extractable extractable value. And this is mostly when we're talking about is kind of the evil kind, which is not transaction fees, right? Because that's transaction fees, but we're talking about something like, can the miner do Mess with the mempool in specific ways to gain more fees than the transactors were expecting, or ext- maybe not just fees, but uh, grab more value, right? So, um, in the if you, if you think of the ephemeral anchor can uh, example, I think it's fairly straightforward, right? Uh, let's imagine you put you know one bitcoin into a anyone can spend output like. Um, an opt-true output, right, from a anchor type output, then it stands to reason that everyone will try to take that, right? So everyone will start making transactions, trying to sweep it, put it into their own wallet under their own key. But in the end, a miner theoretically should just, whoever mines the block should be inserting their own transaction that takes that entire Bitcoin and puts it in their wallet, right? So that's kind of the, the MEV and the MEV scenarios discussing.
0: Okay, now, uh, maybe relate that more to a more practical ephemeral anchor. Uh, Are there satoshis in an ephemeral anchor normally? Should there be? So
5: most discussion when we talk about ephemeral anchors is, oh, it would be nice if we could have zero value outputs. And there's a bunch of good reasons for this, right? Um, If you have like CTV activated, for example, this would be a great way of uh, paying for fees in a CTV transaction where you have this state transition happen, and then someone does a CPFP that brings the fees using this zero value anchor. But there's actually uh, flexibility here that um, the output is identified as an informal anchor by the script pub key itself, not the value itself. So you're allowed to have any value there. Um, And this comes into play with other protocols where um, excuse me. Uh, the Lightning Network spec allows for HTLCs that are too small to be viable, to be what they call trimmed, which means you basically remove that output from the commitment transaction, don't actually include it, and you dump those Satoshi values to transaction fees. One wrinkle here is that with the ephemeral anchor's case, we don't want a transaction from the ephemeral anchor to include its own fees because that incentivizes uh, a miner picking up that transaction by itself, leaving dust in the UTXO set. So it also it, it uh, simplifies implementation as well. But basically, there's these two points that we want an ephemeral anchor transaction to have zero fees, but we want to be able to put those. We want to put those that value somewhere, and the most natural place to put it would be in the ephemeral anchor itself. In the in the Lightning case, so depending on defaults and whatnot, you could have up to I did some math with modern channels, you get something like thirteen to thirty thousand by default with default configuration, thirteen to thirty thousand Satoshis sitting in an output that would be freely grabbable by anyone. So it's kind of the practical result that sets up this scenario.
0: So Due to these trimmed HTLCs, essentially there's some extra satoshis lying around, and if they end up in an ephemeral anchor, we end up with the Mev case that you outlined earlier. Obviously, not with one bitcoin, with a smaller amount, but it can sort of mess with the incentives.
5: Sorry, can you use that question at the end? I missed it.
0: Yeah, I would. I was sort of just maybe paraphrasing what you said. Did I did I get that right? I think so. Yeah. Okay, so we we noted the alternative solutions that were proposed, three of them only relaying transactions that are fully minor incentive-compatible being one, two, burn trimmed value, two, uh, and then three, ensure that MEV transactions propagate easily. Any of those that you'd like to double-click on?
5: Um, let's see. So the first one was incentive-compatible... Second one was which one? Sorry, I'm not at my computer right now.
0: So the, the first one, yeah, it, minor incentive compatible, burned is two, and then ensuring mm-hmm. prop, propagation is three.
5: Yeah, so I think the ideally what you do is you have bots sitting around the network. And I think this is Blue Matt's point. You'd have bots sitting around the network or scripts running that would notice this and then immediately burn it to fees because that's kind of like the natural thing. Um, off In many cases, it would be enough fees to get a transaction in, confirmed anyways, and so maybe it's useful just to do that. Um, so you could have essentially bots front running and sending it all to, to miners. And while that's true in an incentive compatibility way, um, the problem is, right, imagine that if you're doing a race condition where someone wants to take the fees, then they can front run those front runs and Add an additional Satoshian fees to whatever transaction they make. So, or actually, no, you don't even have to do that, right? You send it to themselves, and the add, and you don't even have to add additional fees. So when they do the replacement check, so RBF rule three will say, does it have as many Satoshi's in replacement? Yeah, but the pure burn to fees would not satisfy the incremental relay fee. So essentially, whoever gets there first is kind of an incumbent, and there's incentives for the incumbents to be someone who's just taking fees for themselves. So in that case, you'd have to be relying on miners running their own software on the side that do this kind of analysis and swap out if necessary. So that's kind of like one way you could do it. Um, I think the better way to do it is probably to front run that just automatically. Right? So rather than submit. When a node gets a from like transaction and child rather than submitting a new child kind of front-running and submitting it, we just do imagine we're doing an RBF. So you simulate the pure burn RBF, say what if uh, does this beat, incentive compatibility-wise, a pure burn RBF? And if it does not, then you reject it. If it does, you accept it. So this reduces the incentives to where you know someone will send funds to themselves or use those or use those out, output value as a you know to pay for their own transactions right
0: we noted that there was no conclusion that seemed to have been reached at the time that we published the newsletter yesterday mm. would would you agree with that and is this something no
5: that- so we don't need we don't need agreement on this which is a good part this is just like relay policy so my current plan is to first i have to i'm working on Importing some of the uh, cluster mempool logic that we you guys have been talking about called the diagram checks, which does a better. does a better? Uh, incentive it does a proper incentive compatibility check. I'm going to apply that to my, my plan is to apply those diagram checks to the case where you're conflicting with a size two cluster. Right? So parent child. Um, you conflicting. Yeah, conflicting with the child of a size two cluster, and then do proper instead of capability checks on that. And then I'm just going to filter out anything that doesn't beat um, a pure burn RBF in, in a diagram check. Because it's the diagram check code is going to be there for other reasons anyways. And it's really simple to apply. So why not? That's my conclusion for now.
0: MERCH, James,
1: any comments or questions? So uh, there was one thing. I'm not sure. You probably covered it already in your writings, but could you clarify maybe? Um, so if the problem is that the miner is front running, spending the ephemeral anchor, that means that they collect can collect the money from the ephemeral anchor, but the transaction gets confirmed. So mission accomplished. So how, how is that a problem?
5: Oh, we, we just don't want to make miners have to run bespoke software to be as competitive as other people. We want mining software to be dumb and easy that's all i agree from a security perspective from a smart smart contract to security perspective it's not a problem but i'd rather relay and mining code be stock and people make money doing that obviously you can't mitigate all circumstances if people do weird stuff that opens up mev in other ways but if i'm proposing a way i don't want to propose a way to increase mev inherently on a popular protocol
1: yeah that's
0: fair greg thanks for joining us you're welcome to stay on. We've wrapped up the news section for this week. We have one release to cover, which is LDK 0.0.119. The headline feature that we highlighted here in the newsletter is receiving payments to multi-hop blinded paths, which we've actually covered in individual notable PRs in the last months. Additionally, this release has... 280 commits from 22 authors, which includes bug fixes, category of changes related to performance improvements, a bunch of API updates, and some notes about backwards compatibility. So obviously LDK node operators and users. Check out the details in the release notes for all of the details there. As we move to the notable code and documentation changes, take the opportunity to solicit any questions from the audience whether you want to request speaker access or leave a comment on the thread here we'll try to get to that by the end of the show bitcoin core 29058 which makes some changes in preparation to have v2 transport the default so if v2 transport is enabled this pr now will allow bitcoin core to use v2 for connect add node and seed node and additionally also adds a field to the output table from NetInfo that notes v1 versus v2 transport, sort of a reporting mechanism. Murchi, may have more to say on this? Uh,
1: Not really much. So v2 transport was rolled out with the last major release, of course, uh, but currently, it only um, is used if both nodes that are connecting organically already have it active, Uh, you can't um, just reach out to a specific node and connect to them with V2. It'll always use V1 protocol if you use Connect or node in the last release. So, of course, in the long term, we'd like to transition all of our nodes to that new V2 protocol and um, To that end, uh, it needs to be supported by all of the mechanisms that we use to connect to nodes. And uh, we still need to be backwards compatible so that when a a counterparty does not speak the new protocol, we can fall back to the old one. Uh, So this is just um, more of the groundwork uh, to, to be able to default on. So that
0: optimistic and fallback mechanism is not something that's in 26. Is that right?
1: Um, I don't think so, no.
0: Bitcoin core 29200. So a Bitcoin core node using I2P may only connect to uh, I2P peer destination if both sides have sessions with the same encryption type. So I2P supports multiple encryption types. This is uh, an anonymity network similar to Tor. And since Bitcoin Core is not currently setting the encryption type before this PR, when Bitcoin Core was creating I2P connections, it used the default encryption type labeled type zero. And after this pull request, Bitcoin Core's I2P session creation uses both type zero as well as the new type four, which will allow Bitcoin Core to connect to I2P pairs of either type. And it will also then use the newer faster type four as preferred type. I didn't get into any of the uh, encryption jargon, Merch, I don't know if you're familiar with any of those types of encryption or you think it's worth noting anything there. All right. Bitcoin Core 28.890, removing the RPC serial version configuration parameter that was previously deprecated. We covered the deprecation and discussed that Rationale behind that in uh, podcast 269, that was a configuration option that allowed users to specify the format of the raw transaction or the blocks block hex serialization and allowed users to continue to access blocks and transactions, but without any of the SegWit fields. As SegWit's been rolled out and adopted widely, that configuration parameter was deprecated and now removed. Anything to add, Merch?
1: I just want to steelman how this is a good thing because, um, well, SegWit's been in Bitcoin Core since 0.13, which is now 13 major releases ago. And it's been active since tw- August 2017. So we're uh, push six and a half years ago. If you're still using non-SegWit and are opposed to reading full blocks of which over 90% of the transactions are SegWit transactions, you're probably on the wrong network.
0: Eclair 2808, allowing users of Eclair to specify the maximum amount that their node is willing to pay in on-chain fees in order to open a channel. The way that you do that is a parameter titled funding fee budget satoshis. And that parameter is available for the open RPC. And the default of that parameter is set to 0.1% of the amount paid into the channel. And that same parameter is also used in the RBF open RPC in order to specify that funding amount. And from the PR, it also notes, quote, it will work with both the single and dual funding cases. Next PR, LND 8188. Oliver, thanks for hanging on for us. It's been 70 minutes, but we got here. Um, this PR to l adds features for getting debug information, encrypting it to a public key and decrypting it given a private key. Oliver, maybe you want to get into that a bit and why this might be interesting.
4: Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for the invite. Uh, and thanks for the newsletter, by the way, uh, as well. Uh, always love it. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the PR basically solves two problems that we commonly have. Um, like the first part is that we now finally have an RPC that just returns the current configuration of LND um, as LND knows it, so um, fully parsed and com- uh, combined from command line arguments and the config file. So um, uh, that that should be very helpful um, to just get that over an RPC, and as well as the the last lines of the log file. So because that's now can be exposed over RPC, it will be also be easy for UIs or wallet softwares to display this before the user had to go into the command line to get the, uh, the log files or find out what the config is. So this alone is is, is always uh, already a, a great addition. And then um, I went one step further and that we basically added the command line command that allows... Uh, uh, that that co- uh, collects a bunch of info about the node, puts it into a, a, a text file and encrypts that for a given public key. And the reason for that is that you, usually if a user has an issue and they, they open issue on GitHub, we request... Uh, logs and config options and basically all the information we need to find out what the problem is. But then users usually just post it with all their public keys and channel points and all the kind of privacy sensitive information still in there. So they kind of have to dox themselves, which isn't always nice or if the users uh, are very sensitive about them that then they're redacted to the point where the locks aren't uh, useful anymore so this this command helps in a way that it just encrypts the whole thing uh, for a, a receiver so that the receiver will need to provide a public key but then basically this information is can be delivered in a complete but uh, privacy preserving way uh, so yeah I'm I hope that the, the wallets will start adding like the, the, the log file and config display option. And then I guess the next step for us would be to provide a public key so users can start sending encrypted debug information.
0: So it protects that important and potentially identifiable information that is maybe now floating around in GitHub issues. or. I guess even if you're worried about someone spying on your email, if they're interacting with you, uh, that can now be encrypted, and you all on your side will will have access to decrypt that in order to help folks troubleshoot. So you'll have a team there that would be able to decrypt that information and, and then help uh, troubleshoot accordingly.
4: Correct, and and also that the command just assembles all the information we normally request in like separate commands uh, w- with just one command so we get more information that we might have gotten previously but in a more privacy preserving way so it, it, it's hopefully a win-win for both sides
0: is there a precedent already for projects doing something like this or is this kind of the the first of the kind that you guys are blazing a trail
4: i have no idea they're uh, I'm sure there must be, but I, I don't have an example present. Um, uh, it's just something we discussed for a long time. We had other ideas in mind, but then I just had some time on a weekend and just coded it, uh, and hopefully will
0: will be used. So I guess it's a good idea for other software projects who are similarly collecting that information from their users, maybe take a look at... What Oliver and the LND team have done here, and see if there's some way that you can protect your users as well in similar scenarios. Maybe that would be the call to action for the audience. Yep. Yeah. Right? Oliver, thanks for hanging on. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for blazing the trail that. here. Yeah, cheers. Thanks. Cheers. Oliver, mate.
1: There's two more LND yeah. uh, commits, I was just going to say. <laughs>
0: I I think I just put that together in my brain, Uh, Oliver, you may be able to help uh, augment these two PRs. I know I didn't brief you on that, so maybe it would be a bit off the cuff. Are you familiar with the next Uh, two slash three PRs
4: that we're covering here? I mean, I've definitely seen them, but I wasn't involved in the review,
0: so I'm not sure how much context I can give you, but uh, we can try. Okay, well, I can, I can take a crack at, at giving a, a summary, and then maybe you can jump in with some of your bespoke knowledge on, on the topics, if, if it's applicable. l d 8096 adding a, quote, fee spike buffer, unquote, to address potentially stuck channel issues. So a scenario can arise where if the channel funding party doesn't have many Satoshis in the channel, and if fee rates spike, the funding party may not have enough to be able to accept an incoming HTLC payment because they don't have enough funds to pay for its fees. So even though they are the ones receiving an incoming payment which would increase their balance, they're not able to accept that. So the suggestion from Bolt 2 is that the person funding actually keep an extra reserve of Satoshi's to ensure additional payments can be received. And now LND implements that specific recommendation. We also linked in the newsletter to the fact that that was implemented um, quite a bit ago by Core Lightning and Eclair to mitigate similar issues.
4: Oliver, any comment? I uh, think you summarized that pretty well. Uh, I guess we just basically missed this change in the spec and were late in implementing it. Uh, and this caused uh, interop issues with uh, Core Lightning and Eclair, especially during the, the high fee spike. So, uh,
0: yeah, I'm very happy that we could, could address and fix this. Last two PRs are both to LND as well 8095 and 8142. Both add more plumbing to LND to be able to handle blinded paths. So I guess similar merch to the slew of blinded path related PRs that we had in the last months from Ellen LDK about blinded paths. It now appears that you and I can go through covering similar set of PRs for LND for the next couple months. Um, specifically, 8142 is titled "Expands validation of blinded routes," which is a fix for a bug that was on, that was surfaced via fuzz testing. It looked like, and 8095 is titled "Add invalid onion blinding handling for blinded paths," and that includes um, a nice series of diagram images, which could be helpful for folks curious about the internals of blinded paths. Oliver. Anything to add on blinded pass in LND? Uh, unfortunately, not. It's an area I'm I'm least involved
4: in, but I'm super happy about all the progress that's being made. Um, and as you mentioned, it's it's just uh, two PRs in a series of uh, I think quite a couple of more that are needed to get this fully working. But um, yeah, really excited to to get a lot of movement here. Excellent.
1: I uh, wanted to actually jump back to the previous topic a little bit. It's kind of funny how the channel reserve is sort of a... um, Well, also I'm a little out of my element here because I have basically a superficial understanding of how lightning works under the hood. But uh, the channel reserve is kind of a tricky topic because it is supposed to prevent the other party from... um, closing the channel out of turn and stealing funds and to have like a minimum punishment penalty uh, available but it's also set to something like one percent of a channel and it is therefore so small that a um, well-prepared adversary that just first pushes all the funds to the other side can minimize their risk for an attempt of closing a channel out of turn And it's also the source of a bunch of headaches like this. Oh, because the channel reserve is too small, I I can't actually receive funds um, because um, I I won't be able to increase my commitment transactions fees to the point where I, as the funder, can um, pay for it. So uh, maybe in the whole context of us talking about Ellen Symmetry earlier, this is one of the reasons why Ellen symmetry would be so much easier as a update mechanism because the fee ping is actually um, pushed back to the point where you actually want to um, submit the commitment transaction and you bring the fees in another um, input to the transaction. I see that Dave is requesting speaker access. Me... We're in trouble, Dave's here. He probably has some corrections for what I'm just talking about.
7: So I think this reserve that we're talking about here for this PR is separate from the channel reserve. So this is just about covering the fees necessary to add an HTLC to a commitment transaction. So if you add an HTLC, you'd add an output, it makes the commitment transaction bigger. And you also need to pay for the HTLC success or timeout transaction, which also require on-chain data. Uh, And in the pre-Anchors Lightning Protocol, uh, all those fees need to be paid for by the party who opened the channel, who funded the channel. Uh, This isn't single funded um, Lightning. Um, And in Anchors, that party still needs to pay a minimal amount of fees, enough to get the commitment transaction into mempools, and to get uh, as, as I think it's zero for um, HTLC X transactions now. Um, so this is this is a separate and completely voluntary reserve, and it's not a um, it's not so much of a compatibility issue between the implementations, um, as I understand it, as it is an issue of if that party doesn't have a voluntary reserve it just can't pay for the fees and so it's counterparty is it's just not going to allow it to accept any funds and so the chair gets gets stuck and uh, there's just nothing it can do except close at that point so it's just a voluntary reserve um, i think there's are those concerns with the penalty being so small but i think this is a completely separate issue
0: we have channel reserve, and now we have this sort of
1: fee buffer reserve, um, separate. Industry, yeah, buffer. Buffer is a great
7: name. I probably should use buffer.
1: Well, one follow up here: uh, Why would the channel be completely stuck? Couldn't the recipient just, um, um, like, reject the inbound payment and then wait for the fees to go down? Or is, do you mean stuck just while the fees are high? There's, there's no
5: way to, with the current protocol, duplex protocol, there's no way of rejecting a payment that like you have to accept it and then fail it. Um, really Rusty, has, the hour. Rusty has a proposal to switch to um, simplified updates, which would be kind of like uh, synchronous and you'd be allowed, then you could bolt on a fast fail uh, message onto that. And so perhaps that would be
1: possible. Okay, second follow-up question, especially while you're here, Greg. If uh, the channel update mechanism moved to LN symmetry, I would assume that the HDLC outputs would also be subject to the fees being brought later because all of the update transactions cannot have fees, right?
5: Correct, it requires zero fee update transactions, which
0: uh, which
5: spurred a lot of the current work for Lightning today.
1: All right. I rest my case. I
0: don't see any questions or comments from the audience, so I think we can wrap up. Thanks to our special guests, Oliver, Greg, Chris, Brandon. Thanks to Dave for joining us to clarify at the end there. And thanks always to my co-host, Merch, and for you all to listen.
1: Cheers. And thanks for James for jumping in and talking ah. to us, too.
0: Yeah. All right. Th- see you next
1: week. Cheers. <laughs>